sitting on a park bench, eyeing little girls with bad intent. Vigilance is the attitude that we all have to adopt in order to protect our children in this world. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. I'm your host, Francie Hakes. I'm a former state and federal prosecutor. You may notice that Jim Clemente, former FBI profiler and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds, is not with me today, and there's a really good reason for that. With everything that's been going on in the news with the Larry Nasser case and USA Gymnastics, the recent grand jury report from Pennsylvania, from the Catholic Church abuse scandals, and other scandals that seem like they're happening on an almost daily basis where you have high-status, high-level offenders, those with authority positions or community positions that suggest that they would never hurt children are actually the ones who are hurting children and abusing children and then covering up the abuse. The organizations may be covering up abuse. The school may be covering up abuse. We see it happen in every aspect of our children's lives. Of course, we know abuse happens in the home. It happens at church. It happens at school. It happens in their daily activities or at camp. So what can we do? Some of you who follow me on Twitter may know that this week I was at a private school in Minneapolis, outside Minneapolis, Minnesota, training students, faculty, staff, and the community on protecting children, talking to them very specifically about, for example, What kind of offenders are targeting their children? If you understand the kind of offender targeting children, does that mean you can protect your children from them? I think the answer is yes. I talk to them about the common characteristics of child abusers. What motivates them to act? What are the signs of child abuse and grooming especially? And most importantly, how to be vigilant against predators. And so Jim and I thought that this would be a great opportunity, since I just finished doing this training, for me to give this training to our best case, worst case listeners. Now, normally this lasts a day or even two, and I only have about 30 or 40 minutes with you guys. So I'm trying to pack everything in to give you a great overview of the same thing that I tell schools, law enforcement professionals, charity organizations, international groups about protecting children. So let's just jump right in. My first question for you all is, what does a predator look like? You know, Jim and I have argued about this before, whether we should even use the term predator. And don't tell Jim I said this, but he has a good point. Because I think that our culture and society and our use of terms has created an expectation of what child sex offenders look like, and more importantly, what they don't look like. So what I want you all to do, either right now or when you're finished with the podcast, go look up the album cover for Jethro Tull's Aqualung. It's an oldie but a goodie. 
I'm looking at the album cover right now, and it is of a very scary, ugly-looking, dirty man in an old brown overcoat and rough clothing glaring at something off-camera that we can't see. And he looks like the epitome of a predator. Everything we expect when we tell our kids about stranger danger. I like to say that stranger danger is one of the worst concepts we've ever come up with as a society. Because while strangers could pose a risk to children, by far the bigger risk is their circle of trust. Their family, the members of their circle like their friends, extended family, aunts and uncles and cousins, teachers, coaches, ministers and priests... All of these people actually represent a much bigger risk to kids than do strangers. Now, I'm going to play you a little sample. I do this in all my trainings. I'm going to play you a sample of something from this album, from this Jethro Tull Aqualung album. And the song, see if you can spot what concerns me about it. Let's listen. I hope y'all could hear that okay, because it's important not only what the album cover looks like, because I think this is our pop culture understanding of who is likely to prey on our kids, but I think that the lyrics tell us something about what popular culture thinks about who represents the greatest risk to our kids. And if you couldn't understand the lyrics, I'll give them to you. It was sitting on a park bench, eyeing little girls with bad intent. Now, that suggests that it is that person sitting on a park bench who represents the greatest danger to your children. But in fact, it's normal people inside the community, and especially acquaintance or nice guy or gal acquaintance offenders. So what do child molesters look like? Well, I'm going to post some of these photographs on our Facebook page and on Twitter once we release this episode so you all can look at some of these images that I share with others when I give this training. What do they look like? Well, they look like everyone. For example, I'm looking at a man now wearing ball gear of some kind, like a baseball team gear, and he's smiling and he's got sunglasses on and he looks like a happy, normal guy. But is he? In fact, he lured a 13-year-old girl he met over Snapchat and sexually assaulted her. And he looks like he could be anyone in the community. He certainly does not look like the man on the album cover of Jethro Tull's Aqualung. I have another picture of a man who looks like everyone else other than the fact that he's wearing jail clothes. It sort of gives it away. But he's a bald man who looks a little bit grim in this booking photo. But if you put normal clothes and a ball cap on him, he too looks normal. In fact, he's a rapist. He raped a 10-year-old child. Then there's the volunteer from the major charity organization, Big Brothers Big Sisters. This man volunteered to be a big brother, and he took advantage of the 14-year-old little brother over a period of months, and he sexually assaulted him. Did anyone notice? Did anyone expect that this man who was simply volunteering to be a big brother, which is an admirable thing for an admirable organization, Did anyone suspect him of being a child sex offender? No. Did they run a background check on him? I guarantee you they did. Did it turn up a conviction? No. We're going to talk in a few minutes about why that probably is. 
I also have a photograph here that, of someone that I'm sure you all are familiar with. It's a man named Mark Salling. He is an actor or was an actor on the TV show Glee. It was a hit series about high school kids in a Glee club. And his character in the show was much like the actor himself, kind of a ladies' man, incredibly handsome guy. When you look at him, do you think child molester? Well, Mark Salling's girlfriend turned him in for possessing child pornography. He later pled guilty, and then he committed suicide. A tragic ending, but someone that no one would have suspected was a danger to children or had a sexual interest in children. But we'll talk a little bit later about child pornography and its impact on child sex offenders and those with a sexual interest in children. And then you might look up the photograph for an actor from Hollywood named Corey Sly. Corey was a soap opera actor and is one of the most beautiful human beings I have ever seen. I mean drop-dead gorgeous. He has model girlfriends. No one would ever suspect him of being a predator or a child molester or a child abuser, any of those terms that we use, or a pedophile. My own home state of Georgia just prosecuted him this year for raping an eight-year-old relative. Now, when I first heard about the charges, I admit, I was worried that Corey Sly would not be convicted of these charges. And frankly, it has everything to do with his looks and our bias in society about good-looking people who, why would they molest a child? Why would they rape a woman? They can get anyone they want for sex. And of course, that is not the point. It's completely beside the point. Child sex offenders molest and rape children because they are sexually interested in children. We're going to talk a little bit also about the differences between preferential and situational sex offenders so that you in your daily lives, as you protect your children, as you go to your schools, your charities, your volunteer functions, your soccer games, your hockey matches, and you can also learn what you need to know in order to spot, yes, Jim, I'll use the term, the predator hiding amongst you. I like to call this knowledge that I'm hoping to be able to give you today the virtues of vigilance, because I think vigilance is the attitude that we all have to adopt in order to protect our children in this world. Safe children mean successful children, schools, and society. What are some of the costs of child sexual abuse? We know that survivors of child sexual abuse suffer higher incidences of suicide attempts, depression, prostitution, promiscuity, drug and alcohol abuse, and even eating disorders. All of these are the very real costs, in addition to the real emotional costs, of suffering child sexual abuse. One of my favorite quotes, in fact, I think it is my favorite quote of all time, is from a man that I'm sure you all know named Nelson Mandela. And he said, there can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. There was a case in Ohio once with a federal judge who was looking at images of child sexual abuse, what is commonly called child pornography, in the first such case that he had ever had. And he commented, Given the current statistics around child pornography, we're living in a country that is losing its soul. I think this is a really hard topic to talk about. It's a really hard topic to listen to. But as Jim likes to say, 
You always teach your children to look both ways before crossing the road. You teach them that cars are dangerous, that cars might mean harm to them if they don't look both ways, if they're not paying attention. Why then do we not do the same for children? Why do we not teach children that there are people who might harm them and that mean them harm and that they should look out for? I like to say that children are their first best defense against being exploited, but they can't be their own best line of defense. They can't defend themselves against exploitation if they're not told that that is a risk. If they don't understand that some of the adult behaviors that we commonly call grooming, where we know someone intends to sexually harm that child, if we don't teach the children those signs, how do we expect them to know it? How do we expect them to understand what to do when they're faced with that situation? When I was at the Department of Justice, I was appointed to be the nation's first national coordinator for child exploitation, prevention, and interdiction. And that position was mandated to exist by Congress. Congress also required the Department of Justice to promulgate what was called the National Strategy for Child Exploitation, Prevention, and Interdiction. The point of the strategy was to really do three things. First, to assess the threat that certain kinds of child exploitation pose to our nation's children. Second, to tell the country and Congress what it was that the Department of Justice and all our partners were doing to fight child exploitation. And third, what kind of practices and policies and procedures would we put into place to further combat this scourge that is child sexual abuse? And so that was one of my first jobs, was to promulgate this strategy. You can get it online at www.projectsafechildhood.gov. And the national strategy has been updated a couple of times since 2010 when it was first sent to Congress. That first piece, that threat assessment, it's incomplete because there's no way to know exactly how many children are at risk of being sexually exploited. We certainly did the best with the data that we had. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that risk so that you know the risk that your children face in their everyday lives from those who would sexually abuse them. And I want to be very clear that children face the most risk from people inside their circle of trust. Somewhere around 85 to 90% of children who are abused are abused by people they know. So stranger abuse is very uncommon. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. So what about child pornography? Well, people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to think about it. People don't want to know about it. People definitely don't want to listen to it. But child pornography reflects the crime scene that is children being sexually abused. And it can take many different forms, this child pornography. And it can even be self-produced, a growing category with children being pressured or coerced or blackmailed into taking images of themselves in sexually explicit situations. We know that federal prosecutions of child pornography alone, just child pornography, increased 82% over the decade between the mid-90s to the mid-2000s. And people like me, professionals who've been working in child sexual abuse for years, were asked to do a survey for this threat assessment, for this national strategy. And one of the things that experts in the field, agents, prosecutors, local detectives, social scientists, health, mental health workers, child advocacy center personnel, what we all reported was that we were starting to see an increasing level of violence in these images and the age of the children decreasing in these images. Again, this is something that is incredibly hard to hear, but it is an absolute fact that more and more of those who are abusing children are abusing children in a more violent way and abusing children younger and younger. Infants and toddlers are being abused. Why? Well, I'm sure there are a lot of sociological reasons for it, but one practical criminal reason for it is that these children cannot report that they're being abused. They are ultimately so vulnerable because they're pre-verbal. They can't understand what's happening to them. They can't report what's happening to them. And oftentimes within six months, their looks have completely changed. And so finding them just from seeing their pictures is increasingly difficult. The other things we learned from this threat assessment included that there were investigative connections, real world connections between those who download and traffic in child pornography and those who physically sexually assault children. I want to make it very clear. In my cases, Defense attorneys and even judges would say often in court, oh, this is just someone looking at images. You don't have any evidence that they've touched children. Well, of course, this makes no sense whatsoever if you think about it just from a common sense standpoint. But we know that those who are sexually interested in children are the ones who are most likely to collect and traffic in child pornography. And I equate it with those um, those ads you see all the time. So I'm kind of a baking fanatic. I love to cook and bake. And so I see when I search things on Google or I go to Facebook, I see these ads for recipes on all these recipe sites. And I look at them a lot. I admit it. I'm completely obsessed with baking. And if I see an item that I want, do you think I just look at the recipe and just watch someone else make that cake that looks delicious? Of course not. At least five times out of 10, I decide to try that recipe myself. And it's a sick comparison. But those with a sexual interest in children are not satisfied just looking at these images. So we know there are connections. 
And the children talk very specifically about what they suffer when they're victimized with sexual assault, but also victimized by having the images of those assaults captured on pictures or video. They talk about they have increased anxiety, helplessness, and fear being identified by strangers. One child who's now in her 30s in a series of images that were taken from the UK and that were for a while anyway, the most traded series in the world on the internet. She reports she was never able to become a teacher and she finds it extremely difficult to just do something simple the rest of us do without thinking of it like visiting a Starbucks. Imagine you're about to walk into a Starbucks. You go to open the door and someone comes out of the Starbucks and holds the door for you and smiles vaguely at you and then keeps walking. Well, most of us think nothing of it. But what did she think when that would happen to her? She couldn't help wondering if that person was smiling at her because they've seen her images online. And did they get sexual gratification from her anguish and abuse? And the fear of that was paralyzing to her, and she almost became a shut-in. And to this day, she finds it difficult to interact with people because she always questions the motivation. Victims of child pornography also tell us very clearly, they beg us, don't pretend that no one's getting hurt. And that is my message to all you law enforcement professionals out there that listen to this podcast. And I know we have a lot. You write in, and I really appreciate that. Judges need to understand what it is that we're dealing with when we're dealing with people who are trafficking in the images of the sexual assault of children. Did you know that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has reviewed over 249 million images? Since 2002? Yeah, I'm going to say that again. 249 million images have been reviewed by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children just since 2002. They're charged by Congress with being the clearinghouse for these kind of images to try and analyze and identify the children depicted in these images. And since 2002, how many children have been identified by these hero analysts at the National Center? 15,000. Hundreds of millions of images and 15,000 children have been identified. You know, I testified before Congress last year and I told them that these children in these images are desperate and in need of our help and we're not coming. Why aren't we coming? Why aren't we doing more to rescue them? Why is this a topic no one wants to talk about? Is it because children don't have any power? Children don't have lobbyists? Judges think that the defendants who look very much like them sitting in a courtroom downloading child pornography are merely perverse or sick, but they don't really belong in jail because they're not really a risk to children? What as a society are we doing and what can we do to protect our children from them? Well, we know that child pornography contributes to child sexual abuse. So let's talk about who is it that's abusing children? And putting these images online. About 60% are parents, guardians, and other relatives, neighbors, or family friends. Another 10% are babysitters, teachers, or coaches. Another 4% are the guardian's partners. So, what I've seen in my experience, unfortunately, is it's almost always the stepfather. There's about 15% of children who are abused and whose images are put online are enticed online to do it. 
very small percentage are human traffickers, and an even smaller percentage are strangers. Only about 4% are strangers. So we don't have to worry, right, about our children self-producing images. But of course we do. That online enticement and that self-produced child pornography is a growing phenomenon. And it's why it's not popular, but I always advocate to parents that they should be checking their children's electronic devices. And if you're not, I like to say, you're crazy. Because 14 and 15-year-olds are not making good decisions. And the statistics out there tell us that at least one quarter of teens are sending or receiving sexually explicit images of other teens on their digital devices. And we have seen that teens can be prosecuted for that. Let's talk also a little bit today about the Catholic Church scandals and some of the numbers. The priests that have been accused, some have been convicted, many credibly accused, the numbers of this are staggering. And the most recent example, of course, is the Attorney General's report out of the state of Pennsylvania. They did months and months of work seeking subpoenas from six different dioceses inside the state of Pennsylvania. And they uncovered over 300 priests who had all sexually abused more than a thousand victims total. And those are the ones they know about. Over the past 50 years, we've documented more than 4,000 priest offenders, more than 11,000 victims. 13% of those victims reported their abuse in the first year. Think about that, just 13%. 25% of victims waited more than 30 years before reporting. So how many more victims are out there who were abused in the 2000s or the 90s or the 80s or the 70s? I say there are still thousands to come. So we're safe with women, right? I mean, let's think about that for a second. How many times have you thought about hiring a babysitter? Would you hire a male babysitter, a male teen babysitter? Or what about sending off a female teacher as the chaperone for an overnight trip? Or your leaders of the volunteer organizations for an away soccer game when they're going to travel? I mean, as long as we have the wives along, all the kids are safe because women are never offenders. Of course, if you have not had your head in the sand for the last two decades, you know that's not true. And the best example of it that we see in the news anyway are the teacher offenders. You've seen this in the news. You've probably seen it in the news in the last two weeks in your state or your country where teachers are engaging in the sexual assault of mostly male students in their classes. You know, we don't know much about female offenders. It's like we're just starting to learn who they are. Many of them are coerced by someone else. I myself, in my own experience, prosecuted cases where women were sexually assaulting their own children for a variety of reasons. And I felt like it was almost never because they were sexually attracted to them. I say almost never, by the way. Part of it was because they wanted to win the affection of a man who was sexually interested in their children. And so they would assault their children in order to entice the man, or they would assault their children for money. This is happening a lot, especially uh, women uh, who are single mothers communicating with offenders all over the world for child sexual abuse on demand live online, and they're doing it for money. Some of these women claim to have a history of sexual abuse, and many of the women who are sexually attracted to children tend to be sadistic and physically violent with these children. 
and choose to have victims who are under six years old. I think it's because they're easier to control. So what about female teachers? I think we've all heard a bunch of cases of female teachers lately. And what's one common theme that really drives me as a woman completely insane? Well, one factor is that the more attractive the teacher, the less likely the teacher is to go to jail. Does that seem equitable to you? Do we feel the same when a 45-year-old male teacher sexually assaults a 13-year-old girl as we do when a 45-year-old female teacher sexually assaults a 13-year-old boy? We should feel the same. Studies tell us that the effects of child sexual abuse on boys and girls is exactly the same. But we don't treat them the same. And if they're attractive, you can read in these news articles with these attractive teachers who've been caught. You can see in the comments section, people saying, well, gee, if that was my first time, I'd count myself lucky. This kind of ignorance merely allows this sort of abuse to occur and fester because no one looks at these attractive teachers as if they too could be, again, sorry, Jim, a predator. And what about schools? What are schools doing to protect our kids? Well, I myself have trained at several schools who understand that children are their own first best line of defense. And I talk to those kids and I talk to them very bluntly about child sexual abuse and those who might want to prey on them. We know from all of these teachers and coaches who've been arrested in the past that they appear to have two different faces. The person that the community loves, the person that everyone thinks is a winning coach or a popular teacher, the one who's the first to volunteer to take your kids home. You know, Jim likes to say that if your teacher or your coach of your kid wants to spend more time with your child than you do, that is a red flag. What about young teachers, 24, 25, 26? Well, just last week, there was a 24 year old hockey coach who ran off with a 13-year-old girl. We have to be vigilant about our children. And if we're not telling our children about things like grooming and who will target them, then we are not giving our children the information that they need in order to understand the danger. So we talked earlier about people with a sexual interest in children. Who are they? Are they all pedophiles? Is everyone who molests a child a pedophile? Of course, the answer is no, because there's a difference between situational and preferential offenders. And understanding what motivates them is key to crafting policies within your schools and your churches and your youth groups and your soccer clubs that will defeat their ability to access your child, to target your child, and to abuse your child. So what's the difference? Situational offenders are very impulsive. They may very well be people who are not primarily sexually attracted to children. But when the opportunity presents itself, they will. The best example I always give is of the coach who volunteers to take all the kids or four or five of the kids home after practice. Well, inevitably, there's only one child left in the car with the coach. And I think that is a situation that simply cannot be allowed to happen. Now, I know some of you are saying, Francie, why panic? And you know you're right. Because most of the time, your child is perfectly safe from their coach, their teacher, their minister, or their priest. But it is because of those other times, because of the actual risk of actual offenders that exist, that we have to be vigilant all of the time. What about preferential sex offenders? These people are compulsive. They are primarily sexually interested in children. 
They may even be pedophiles, that is, those with a persistent sexual interest in children under the age of 12. These kind of offenders, these preferential sex offenders, are absolutely compulsively obsessed with sex with children. Social scientists, specialists like Dr. Joe Sullivan and Dr. Michael Cito, Dr. Michael Burke at the U.S. Marshal Service Behavioral Analysis Unit, they tell me that there are 3% of the adult males in the population that are pedophiles, that have a persistent sexual interest in children. We also know that one of the biggest factors in whether someone is a preferential sex offender includes the collection and trafficking in child pornography. And we know that these preferential sex offenders themselves understand that they have a deviant sexual interest in children from the time they hit puberty or maybe by the time, at least by the time they're 18. So how do you protect your children? Well, you have to understand grooming. That is the constellation of behaviors that these offenders will engage in in order to lure your child into becoming compliant in their own victimization. It is exceedingly rare that a child will be grabbed and sexually assaulted by a stranger or even someone they know. It is almost always preceded by these grooming behaviors, which you can fundamentally describe as behaviors that are designed to break down the role boundaries between adults and children. So a teacher or a coach or a priest who are singling your child out for attention, recognition, or showing them a special affection or kindness, giving them things like money or trips or jewelry or clothing, plying them with alcohol, allowing them privileges other students or other kids in the class or kids in the club don't get, allowing children the forbidden. We have got to tell our children that regular adults will not allow them to consume child pornography or consume pornography or smoke or drink or drive unless they want to take advantage of the child. We have to arm our children with the knowledge that these kind of lures are the precursor of possible sexual abuse. Sometimes those lures, that grooming process for these offenders will include touching the children, will include talking about sex with the children, will include mutual masturbation with the children, and then, of course, may go all the way into sexual assault. But any of those things can be sexually gratifying for the offender. And that's why it's so important that we look out for adults who are trying to break down the role boundaries that are supposed to exist between adults and children. We have to talk to our kids about those role boundaries and what is expected of adults and what is wrong and who those children should talk to when they suspect they are being targeted. What are some of the signposts of this kind of grooming and abuse? Red flags that you yourselves as parents, teachers, coaches, community leaders, counselors can take and spot when a child is exhibiting that it may be the sign that they are being sexually abused or targeted for sexual abuse. Well, sudden behavioral changes is always a key indicator. For very young children, it's regressive behavior. It's children who are seven or eight who suddenly are wetting the bed or who don't seem potty trained anymore, even though it's been years since that happened. That kind of regressive behavior is a very strong signal that a child is being sexually abused. If a child is sexually acting out, if you've got a five-year-old who is trying to engage in some sort of sexual activity by pulling down the pants of other little girls in his class, 
you have to ask yourself whether that five-year-old is being sexually abused at home. Does that five-year-old or that eight-year-old or that 10-year-old have sexual knowledge that does not fit their age group? Do they know terminology that they would only know if they were being sexually abused? Are they engaging in sudden secretive behavior? This is very typical for teens, especially those who are being lured online. Again, can I just please put in a plug for monitoring your children's computer activity and phone activity? If they try to commit suicide or other sort of self-harming attempts, cutting, unexplained money or gifts, these are all signposts that mean the child is actually calling out for help for us. And I hope we're paying attention. I hope we understand that children do not react to child sexual abuse the way they do to, say, skinning their knee. Child sexual abuse is underreported, studies tell us, of adult survivors, anywhere from 75 to 90%. That means that children are only telling us 10 to 25% of the time. And when you take those numbers of outcries, that is numbers of children who do report abuse, do you know how many of those ultimately result in an actual conviction of a sex offender? It's about 3%. So sort of 3% of nothing. So you can't rely on background checks. You can't rely on convictions in order to know that someone who has access to your child is sexually interested in them. Most molesters, it is a sad fact, are simply never caught. I think the United States is the only country in the world that has a public sex offender registry. Why is that? Why are these other countries more concerned with protecting offenders' privacy than they are for protecting our children? If you live anywhere in the United States, you can plug your zip code into the National Sex Offender Registry and see all the registered sex offenders that live around you. If you don't know this information now, go and get it. But beware. Simply because someone is on the registry does not mean they are the only ones in the community that represent a clear and present danger to your children. Be vigilant. Demand the policies of your school, your youth groups, your churches, your soccer clubs, your travel teams. What are their contact policies? What are their policies for protecting your children from the people that we know join those organizations for the sole purpose of getting access to kids. I think that's all the time that I have today. Of course, I could go on and on about this topic for days. I hope you found this helpful. I really would appreciate you all writing in. Uh, either contact me on Twitter or on our Best Case, Worst Case Facebook page. Let me know if you found this information valuable. I hope you did. I will post some of these pictures that I talked about. Please do go and see the album cover for Jethro Tull's Aqualung to see what I'm talking about. I'll also post that album cover on our Facebook page so you can have a look at it and so that you can see that our commonly understood definition of a predator is not the person who represents the biggest danger to your children. I want to wish you the best of luck in protecting your children. Jim and I want to thank you for your attention on this topic and for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Until next time, thanks for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondering. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. 
We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless. But the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org. Thank you.